Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. Hi, welcome to another edition of Differing Things. I am your host, Bill Petrie, and I have with me uh, Phil Scranton. Uh, We're going to continue our discussion that we began last week on a study of the book of Ephesians. Phil is the author of two really, really amazingly good books, and I think anybody would be foolish not to really want to get a hold of those books and read them. The first one is Samson, Keeper of the Gates. And the second one is Journey to and Through the Second Death. How are you, Phil? Very good, Bill. Nice to see, talk to you and uh, be with you today. Thank you. It's always great to have you on. And do you realize not only are you the first person to be our uh, a guest t- twice, but hey, this week you're on for a third time. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I've I appreciate the opportunity, Bill. Now, last week, we we began a study of the book of Ephesians, and we we really saw a lot of uh, profound things in regard to the book. And it would really be beneficial if you didn't listen to last week's podcast to do so. Um, Some of the highlights that we hit were the distinctiveness between Peter and Paul and how Peter was an apostle to Israel, while Paul is an apostle to the body of Christ. We saw how the book of Ephesians fits into Paul's other writings. We saw the distinction between celestial and terrestrial, and we began to have a discussion about Paul's usage of pronouns. And it's this usage of pronouns that I want to pick up with, if that's okay with you, Phil. Uh, I'd be glad for that, Bill. I want to ask a question then. What is the distinction between we, us, our, and you? Okay. Well, Bill, as we said last week, we have uh, two plural first-person pronouns that really dominate the first two chapters of Ephesians. Chapters 1 and 2 have... If with the one single exception of Paul saying, I'm praying this for you, uh, all of the first person pronouns are plural. It's always a we, Paul, and a group with him. And then also uh, the, the you is the Gentile believers. I take this from the book itself um, a couple of places. In uh, chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, Wherefore, remember that once you, the nations in flesh. And so he is telling us right there very specifically who the you is. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we could give us another example. On this behalf, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you, the nations. So, And we could multiply examples, but I think it's very clear. Uh, the... Uh, And then as far as who the we is, 
we would ask the question, is Paul here just speaking of himself and his associates who were helping him evangelize, or is he speaking of all Jewish believers? And the question we will see as we go through is that this really does refer to all Jewish believers. Now, there's one more word I'd like to throw in here. And I think it's important. And this was actually quite a stumbling block to me for a long time. And that is the word saints. And the way that Paul uses the word saints. Today, when we speak of a saint, uh, often we're thinking of someone who was especially holy or someone who did a tremendous work uh, beyond what an average believer is, is known to do. But in Paul's day, the word saints was used to speak of the Jewish people. They were God's chosen people. They were set apart. And so that first century, that's still the kind of thought that is attached to the word saints. So we might ask the question, how did we go from saints being the Jews of the Old Testament to being believers today? And it's really right here in the book of Ephesians that that transition takes place. But Paul speaks of the saints frequently in the book with that first century kind of uh, meaning for the word. Paul, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus through the will of God to all the saints who, and we can read this, and the believers in Christ Jesus, uh, or saints who are also believers in Christ Jesus. It's translated different ways, but he comes across this way in the beginning because he's using saints in the way it was understood contemporary in the first century. But then as we go through the book, he's going to join all these believers together to be saints. But it's something that, that progresses as he makes them one body and the dwelling place of God and fellow citizens and, and and all of these things that the the book is so uh, full of, the idea of unity and oneness, it takes place so that by the end of the book, the the you are brethren, and uh, and so they become one there. Where before this, believing Gentiles were proselytes or God fearers. There were other terms in the New Testament used of them. But this is where all believers in Christ become saints. You know, that's interesting, Phil, because I can't help but think the word saint is in a lot of places rendered as holy or holy ones or something along that line. So you, you do have that meaning with that word to be holy or, or something along that line. Right. Very much so. So would I be correct then in saying that the first person plural pronouns represent the Jewish believers and the second person plural pronouns would represent the Gentile believers? Absolutely, Bill. That's exactly the, the point I wanted to try and get across. 
And as we go through this, there will still be a little bit of confusion because what Paul does is he explains one of the petitions of the prayer using the pronouns this way, but then he comes to a point where he joins them together. Um, and when he joins the Jewish and Gentile believers together, then the pronouns can become universal. For instance, uh, in chapter 2, where in the first few verses he speaks about the Gentiles and how they walked um, according to the prince of the power of the air, and then how the Jewish believers also walked, fulfilling the lust of the flesh, uh, even though they were under gods. But he gives a different description for them. But then he goes on to say that God in his, this vast love that he has loves us. He vivifies us together. And this then it would be a universal us. Right. And he rouses us together and seats us together among the celestials. So this is something that... Uh, we kind of explain as we go along, but there are places where the us and the we can be universal. Okay. So how does, how does this understanding impact our understanding of the entire book? I think, Bill, what, what this really does is it shows us that the, the New Testament, I think, would actually be very incomplete without the book of Ephesians. Um, Paul talks in Romans about Israel as a nation being set aside or cast off, uh, but he says eventually in the future they will be saved. But yet, where is the one place where we really have a thorough joining of Jews to Gentiles so that we no longer have proselytes and God fears with saints and so forth, but all are equally uh, citizens of these holy places. Uh, this is, this is a critical piece for the unity of the new Testament and for the unity of believers today. Right. So when we look at say Paul's prayer in chapter one and, and, we follow through with how Paul joins the Jewish and Gentiles believe, believers together in every petition of the prayer. What is that showing us in relationship to God's purpose for us and how we fit into the future? Well, the we come to understand as he does this, that each petition of that prayer applies to all of us. It applies both to the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. The calling in Christ is for believers to be sons of God. And, you know, in the first, in verses three through six of, the, of chapter one, where he says this, if we were to try, if we went to the, the Jews of the first century and ask them, does this apply to you? Being blessed with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenlies or among the celestial beings? Well, no, they're looking for an earthly kingdom. Um, being blessed in Christ and being chosen in him before the disruption of the world, being chosen in Christ before there was uh, even a need for the cross. Well, let's just ask the Jew of the first century, were you chosen in the Messiah? Were you chosen in Christ, the anointed? And they would say, no, right. we were chosen in our father, Abraham. So we see as we're going through this, Paul is, is laying out the new expectation for the Jewish believers. And he continues doing that down through, um, and that's those, all the, those verses three through six all relate to being sons of God, that first petition of the prayer and needing to realize that we are called to be God's sons. And then verses seven through 12 talk about this future expectation that we have and our position in that, and that it's all of grace. But the Jews knew that grace was not lavished upon them. They had to have faith, and and but they had the law that they were supposed to be keeping and obeying and, and doing so many things. But here, uh, that all of that is being changed because he's saying God is, is pouring out this grace upon them. But then we come down to verses 13 and 14, which really show the first joining of the Jews and Gentiles. He says, in whom you also on hearing the word of truth, the evangel of your salvation. Now notice we've had you and your used there. Right. You also hearing the word of truth, the evangel of your salvation in whom on believing also you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is an earnest of the enjoyment of our allotment. He changes pronouns. He says, when you believed in Christ, you joined us in the things that are, are ours, which he has just redefined for us in the first 12 verses. He's given a new definition for the Jewish expectation. And then he says, when you Gentiles believed, you joined us in that expectation. That's, that's pretty profound. Yeah, and it's, it's so simple uh, that all these things would be done. He answers these questions, but he actually demonstrates them with the use of pronouns. Uh, it's a very ingenious way of uh, of writing but it's it's a way we're not accustomed to watching for and uh, paying such minute attention to all the words you know phil you bring up a really good point there because i think sometimes we forget that the bible was written from a middle eastern perspective and and we always try to read it from a western perspective and sometimes that creates confusion for us, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. Um, for years, Bill, I read this book. And when it said we, I say, okay, Paul's including me with him. And then when it said you, uh, he's just talking to me directly. And that was my perspective. 
but right. he was actually doing something much more than that. He definitely is. Now, I would be remiss because I, I get accused of this all the time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ask this question of you, and people can hear somebody else say say uh, an answer in regards to this. What I always get accused of is that I make too much of a distinction between the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer. So here's my question. Are we making too much of a distinction between the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer? In, in this case, absolutely not. But the reason we're not making too much is because we are showing how that the Jewish and Gentile differences are eradicated by the teaching of this book. Um, you know, Paul said, in, uh, and, and if you want to get really radical, we might think it's radical to, to separate Jew and Gentile, but what does Paul say in Galatians chapter 3? Um, that in Christ Jesus, there's no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free person. There's no male or female. Now, how right. radical can you get? Uh, but we look around and we, we definitely see these. But in Christ, speaking of our position in faith and the future, uh, all of these things are really going to be true. That is and true. So, so when we see the divisions based on the pronouns, we're able to see some of the thought divisions. So, seeing these thought divisions, what's the impact of that on the book? The, the impact there, it, when we see Paul's thoughts and how he's putting them together, we're able to get out of this Western mindset that we're born into. And we're, to me, to a very large extent, we're able to go back and sit down beside Paul in his Roman prison and listen to him and understand what he's saying and see the full significance of it in a way that we couldn't before. I agree. Now, I want to I take a few minutes looking at a passage that, to me, um, really revolutionized the way I approached Scripture, and that's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 down through 17, um, where in the in the King James it renders it, wherefore remember that you that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. And he continues that discussion down through verse 17, where and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. So any thoughts on, on that area of Scripture that you'd like to share? Yeah, this is a, a tremendous passage, Bill, that really uh, hits at the heart of the whole problem and, and deals with it very strongly. Um, and this, I think this is why Paul why this finishes the section where Paul is using the two pronouns so uh, uh, so distinctly, because in chapter three, uh, 
he he almost quits that. He still refers to it occasionally, but but this is an overwhelming section. I'd like to to go back and read a verse from Numbers chapter eighteen, if I may, sure. uh, because I'd like to point out uh, a word association. This is from the Concordant version. And God says, as a gift, am I giving your priesthood? He says, Israel or Moses, I'm giving the, the priest to the nation as a gift. Yet the alien who comes near shall be put to death. Now, Verse uh, 13, yet now in Christ Jesus, you who once are far off are become near. The alien who sh comes near shall be put to death in numbers. But you who are, you aliens who were afar off, you are become near by the blood of Christ. Now, that that kind of hits at the heart of, of what all is going on here. In verse 11, Paul really puts the, the, uh, the Jews and the Gentiles on an even plane. And he does it in a very uh, interesting way. He says, and remember that once you, the nations and flesh who are turned termed uncircumcision, nations in flesh, uncircumcision, by those termed circumcision. But then he, he really knocks this circumcision of the Jews, circumcision in flesh made by hands. He, he doesn't put that spiritual value on it, and he doesn't give any insinuation that this is that circumcision of the heart that Jeremiah spoke of, does he, Bill? No, he does not. And, and, and so, so he puts them down and he says, but back then you were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. You could only be guests in the, of the promised covenants. Uh, you had no expectation. You were without God in the world. What a scary place to be. Oh, it, very much so. Yet now, in Christ Jesus, you once who once are far off are become near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who makes both one. He is making Jew and Gentile one because where before we would have a death sentence, and he's going to talk here about the, a wall that was in the temple at Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, they had different courts around the temple. There was a court, the furthest out, which was called the court of the Gentiles. And the proselytes or God-fearers, the, the people of other nations who believed that Israel's God was a true God, they could come there to worship, but they couldn't go into the real, into the inner holy places. They were left outside. And there were signs posted on this wall basically saying that no person of the nations can go beyond this point. 
and anyone who is caught doing so will be responsible for his own death, which will ensue. That's exactly how it was. It, you, there's a death penalty you're going to pay if you're a Gentile and you pass through this doorway into the next court. Um, but now Paul's talking about the you, the Gentile believers, being brought near. He says there, who makes both one and raises or demolishes the central wall of the barrier. That's this wall we just talked about. Right. And then he gives that another description, the enmity in his flesh. The enmity in his flesh. As I outline this section of the book, we have the word enmity twice. And these are the, the deepest indentations in a chiastic outline. They are the focal points of this passage. And one talks about the enmity in, that was in Christ's flesh. This is his difference between Jew and Gentile. Right. Enmity right. is probably the, the strongest division or separator in humanity. You know, we have friends, we have loved ones, we have people we don't care for. But when we, we come to enemies, we may be talking about life and death separation, uh, yep. the most serious. And if we look at the world's history, we have to, to realize that religious enmity has probably been the most harsh and the most vicious enmity down through the years and how much blood has been shed over religious differences. Oh, I know. It's the whole it, crusades, for instance. Exactly. Um, I think back to my younger days, John Lennon's song, Imagine. And one of the lines of that song was, imagine no religion too. And why, why, you know, the, the greatest blessing is to know God right, and to be his son. But there's a, a large amount of truth in what Lennon had to say there because religion became, through Satan's influence, a, a real divider and an enmity and a source of death. That's true. You, you know what's interesting to me, Phil? Would that phrase that that barrier, or um, some translations will render it um, middle wall of partition, or yes. the wall of separation? Some translations will render it. I think we we oftentimes forget that it was God who made that separation. Yes, it is. Um, if we were. I think we mentioned last time, if we were to go clear back to the Tower of Babel, we see that the nations were divided. They were given different languages because they were all going in the wrong way. And then God put the the uh, uh, angelic beings, those sons of God, as authorities over those nations. But then he chose one man, Abraham, and he built his own nation from them. Right. You know, I, I can't help but think 
and I, I just want to maybe talk about some of these separations just real briefly, and then um, you know let you let you get into how that impacted that an animity. But for instance, Israel or the Jew was separated from the nations by the land that they had that God had promised and given to them. They were separated because they were the ones that had the Mosaic law. The Gentiles didn't have it. It was Israel that had the priesthood. Nobody else had that. Israel had the prophets. The nations didn't. And all the other nations had to approach God through that kingdom of prophets that God intended Israel to be. And failure to do so would mean that they were at animosity, not only with God's nation, but with God himself. And, and I just think that middle wall or that barrier or that wall of separation, um, I think Christianity minimizes the importance of that being broken down. And, and what that does to show the distinctiveness of what Paul is writing compared to everybody else in Scripture. I, I think you're right, Bill. And um, this word enmity comes again in verse 17, and he talks about killing the enmity in it. Mm. Um. I'd, I'd like to I'd like to ask a question or two here, and then I want to cover the, some of the same ground that you did from maybe a little bit different perspective. Okay. Uh, what would have happened, and how would we think about it if Christ Jesus had come as he did, but the Jewish nation repented and fully accepted him and they received a kingdom and were made the highest nation of the world ruling over and guiding all the other nations of the world. Now, how would us Gentiles receive that and think about it? And, and I want to look at this and consider this from the point of view of, of the history that you mentioned. Okay. God said, all the nations, you're going to be under these 70 sons of God and be ruled by them, and I'm going to make my own nation. And so he, he made his own nation from Abraham. And then he delivered that, that nation from slavery. He gave that nation a country that had belonged to other people. He drive them out, kill them, move them out. Uh, he, get, he made a covenant with them. He gave them the law. They had the, the, the service and the rituals. They had, they had all the advantages. They did. They, it was, they had tremendous advantages. And then he takes them into a country, and he says, you're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to reap crops you didn't sow. Uh, and yet, as we, we also know, as we look at their history, over and over and over, they failed God. Right. So what if that nation that God had chosen, that God had built himself, 
that God had blessed in all these extra ways, in spite of all their failures, if the kingdom came, I wonder how we would feel about them ruling over us. That's that's a pretty interesting question. Paul said, uh, I think in Romans about 2.11, there's no partiality with God. Right. God is no respecter of persons. Uh, Comments like that, I think, are the way that it's translated. But let's think about this thing of enmity. We see with Israel having all these blessings that they were at enmity with the nations around them and that the nations around them had to really humble themselves and and uh, eat crow, so to speak, just to, to be in there with them. And then they were still considered second class or third class. But this enmity, that's a problem. It sure is. So how do we get rid of this enmity? It says in verse 16, reconciling both in one body to God through the cross, killing the enmity in it. The cross kills the enmity. Now, how does it do that? Here's how it does that. When we look at the cross, we see the only one who truly was righteous, and he dies for the unrighteous. The Lord Jesus Christ had such privilege. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that he existed in the form of God, but he didn't deem hanging on to that form and, and being the one when there was a when God spoke to someone face to face when uh, uh, through these angels and so forth, we have Christ coming. He was that captain, the Lord's captain uh, that spoke to Joshua and, and so many different ways that we see him having these appearances in the Old Testament. That was Christ in the form right. of God coming. But Christ, the most privileged one, we might say, dies for the unprivileged. That's pretty profound. This this is, and this is what breaks enmity. With the Christ, the cross, the just one for the unjust, this death for the sake of others, this does three things. It helps us perceive. when, When we see that, then we begin to realize grace is in operation. And when we see this, we realize that God does love us, even if we weren't in the chosen nation. He loves us. And we, and the result of that, the result of perceiving grace and the result of seeing love and realizing we're an object of love, that breaks the enmity. You know, I, I one last thought on that. Um, before we close the, the the show today, and I, I can't help but think and ask this question. Doesn't breaking down that barrier end Judaism as we know it? 
Yes, it does today. So, so would we be safe to say then that the information that the Apostle Paul is is giving to us was kept secret, like he addresses in chapter three, because there was no way it could have been known until all of those barriers are being brought down. And in a sense, Israel then has been declared like everybody else so that God could have, if you want to use this terminology, have grace on everybody. Absolutely true, Bill. And and I'd like to go just a, a, a step or two further here, if I may. Sure. In, in these verses, especially 14 through 16, we have a number of words and expressions. Some of them only occur once in the entire book, but they're all clustered right here. This, this passage uh, is really a, a fountainhead of, of doctrine. It's, it's very highly condensed thought. Uh, the word raises or demolishes this wall of partition. That only occurs here. The central wall or the middle wall of partition, that only occurs here. The word law, which Paul speaks in, in Romans and Galatians repeatedly of, this is the only occurrence of the word law in the book of Ephesians. Uh, the precepts and decrees or the ordinances, that word is only used here. Um, that he, the, uh, the new humanity, this is a phrase that occurs twice. But this is the first occurrence of it. And the second occurrence of it is another section in the book that deals with being sons of God in the conduct area, where he says, putting on the new humanity. Uh, the word cross only occurs once, and it's right here. The word killing, when it speaks of killing the enmity, only occurs here. Um, th this is such a tremendous thing. And, and there's another phrase here when he says that he would be creating the two. The word two is that little word duo, and it occurs two times in the book of Ephesians. It occurs right here where he's talking about Jewish believers and Gentile believers being made one. And the other occurrence is in chapter five, where he quotes from Genesis about Adam and Eve and the two would be one flesh. Uh, and both of these really speak of the idea of one body and the relationship to Christ. This, this passage is one of the most condensed pieces of scripture that it's, it's, it's about to burst with Paul's thoughts. Oh, it is. Uh, it, it's tremendous. And we have to go just a step, one step further. The central wall or the middle wall or partition being broken down. What that did is it restricted the Gentile believers from going into holier places. But if we get down to verse 19, it says, Consequently, then, no longer are you, you Gentile believers, guests and sojourners, 
but our fellow citizens of, and in this version I have in front of me, of the saints. But people are not citizens of other people. People are citizens of cities. I think the, the King James Version actually changes the word there. It's definitely in the Greek, the genitive of, but it changes it to with, to being citizens with the saints. Right. But what this is, is, you know, you're citizens of a country or a city or an empire. We're fellow citizens with the Jewish believers of the holies. That is fellow citizens of the holy places. And not just the holy places of a temple in Palestine. We are fellow citizens with these other believers of the holy places in heaven because we have this celestial calling. And so I, I don't ever want to separate the holies there from the idea of that central wall, the barrier. You know, it's interesting that you bring that point up because the book of Hebrews has much to say about the Jewish believer becoming partakers or partners with the celestial believers, which would be us, and in having a partnership in the celestial holy places. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. the, the, that word there, hagios. Uh, is sometimes translated saints when it refers to people, but it's also, especially in the book of Hebrews, as you say, several times rendered the holy places. Right. Uh, the one that jumps to my mind is Hebrews 9 1, where it's rendered as holy place or holy places. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, it could also be rendered holies. Yes. Um, you know, that way too. That That's fascinating. Well, Phil, I, I want to thank you for joining us again, and uh, hopefully I can have you on again in the very near future. And, uh, you know, maybe you want to just take a couple minutes and let us know about uh, your books and how maybe somebody could get a hold of them. Okay. Well, thank you, Bill. It's been my pleasure to, to talk with you today and, and share ideas and thoughts on these books. Um, my book on the second death, Journey to and Through the Second Death, is uh, I've actually done uh, some revising in it and enlarged it a little bit. And that is available on Bill's website, free of charge. It's available on Amazon, uh, Kindle, the Kindle version, which is about $3. Uh, but the whole text is on Bill's website, which if, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, but that's beacon hyphen ministries.org. That's correct. And it's important that they put the hyphen in there because if they leave that out, it'll take them to a different website. Um, also, I'm, I'm working on the manuscript for a study of the book of Ephesians that explains Paul's use of the prayer through the book and also the explaining the pronouns and hoping to get this into print soon. But, um, if, if Bill's willing, I think it's a very good chance this will be on his website also. And we're definitely willing to do that. So um, I would look forward to that coming out. And I will 
I will keep you, the listener, informed when that does come out so that you can you can read it and and uh, get a copy of it for yourself. And uh, Phil, thank you very much. And good day and God bless. Thank you, Bill. God bless you, you also. Thank you, Phil. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Thank you.